Support for CJSW podcasts comes from listeners like you. Visit CJSW.com and join thousands of people who make independent radio available in Calgary and beyond. On Treaty 7 land, you are listening to CJSW 90.9. This is David Barsamian, producer and host of Alternative Radio. You're listening to CJSW. 90.9 FM in Calgary. If Trump is not elected, and if, and it's a big if, if he concedes, by no means certain, he has three months to apply his wrecking ball out of spite. He might just devastate the economy. Actually, there's something we must bear in mind about President Trump. He may be facing serious criminal charges if he's out of office and loses immunity. He has a personal reason to hang on. That's Noam Chomsky, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Noam Chomsky on the president, the pandemic, and the election. We are in uncharted territory, as the media incessantly remind us. We are on the eve of an election amidst a pandemic. The president has declared in advance that the election is a hoax. It is rigged, he says. He would not even commit to saying he would honor the outcome. We'll see what happens, he declares. He knew early on how deadly the coronavirus was telling Bob Woodward it's a killer and a plague, and yet in public continued with happy talk. It'll just go away. It's fading, and we have it totally under control. In addition to a colossal COVID-19 failure, he has whipped some of his supporters into a frenzy. Vigilante groups, men with guns, threaten to kidnap governors. Things are not just getting curiouser and curiouser, as Alice would say, but more and more dangerous. Our guest today is Noam Chomsky, the legendary scholar-activist who has been a leading voice for peace and social justice for many decades. I talked with him on October 9th. He was at his home in Arizona, and I was in Boulder, Colorado. Well, welcome to the program. Glad to be with you again. Let's talk about the current pandemic, which has resulted in the deaths of um, now 215,000 U.S. uh, and millions of cases, numbers that are certain to go much higher. Now, the regime in Washington has come under wide criticism, particularly from the scientific and medical communities. Uh, The New England Journal of Medicine on October 7th, has called the regime's handling of the pandemic, I'm quoting, dangerously incompetent. It has, quote, taken a crisis and turned it into a tragedy. Instead of relying on expertise, the administration has turned to uninformed opinion leaders and charlatans who obscure the truth and facilitate 
the promulgation of outright lies. Now, in addition to the New England Journal of Medicine's action, the Scientific American broke with 175 years of tradition by endorsing the Democratic candidate. Uh, and the Lancet, the prestigious British journal, called on Americans to make Trump a one-term president. What is your understanding and sense of, of what's going on with the pandemic and Washington's response? Basically, they don't care. It is pretty astonishing that the major US medical journal, the New England Journal, which has been around for over two centuries, for the first time in its history, has ever has taken a stand on an election. Scientific American, the same, Lancet did it some months ago. And it is outrageous. In fact, if we look back at the record, it's even more outrageous. Uh, it's worth looking back at the record because we are facing the same situation again that we faced in 2003. Now we'd better understand how this came about if we hope to prevent the next one. And the next one could be much worse. We've been kind of lucky so far. There have been coronaviruses that are highly contagious, but not very lethal like this one is, uh, that have been highly lethal, but not very contagious like Ebola. The next one for all we know might be highly contagious and highly lethal. Uh, we might be back to something like the Black Death. And it's very likely to come. So let's just go back for a minute and look what happened with this one. And specifically what happened with Donald Trump and the Republican Party. In 2003, the SARS epidemic, a coronavirus, was contained. And uh, scientists told us pretty much what they're saying now. They're saying it's very likely others will come. You have to be prepared for it. The way you have to be prepared for it is study coronaviruses, work out possible vaccines, put in place response systems so that when it comes, you'll be ready to move. Well, it's not enough to have the knowledge. Somebody has to do something with it. And here you have fundamental problems much deeper than Trump. Who's going to pick up the ball and run with it on researching and developing the background for vaccines? Obvious candidate, the drug companies have profits coming out of their ears huge laboratories, plenty of resources, but they're blocked by capitalist logic, which remains. You don't put money in something that might work out a couple of years from now. And you certainly don't put money in vaccines, which people use once and then they're done with. Put your money in things you can make profit on tomorrow. That's capitalist logic. So the drug companies are out. Next comes the government. Again, ample resources, wonderful laboratories, but they're blocked by something called neoliberalism, a particularly savage version of capitalism. It was explained to us very frankly 40 years ago, straight out. 
The essence of it was produced in a couple of sentences. Ronald Reagan, inaugural address, government is the problem, not the solution. Meaning we remove decisions from government, which is partially responsive to populations and put the decisions in private hands, which are totally unaccountable. The corporate sector, they'll make the decisions. Second contribution was the primary economic guru of neoliberalism, Milton Friedman, about the same time came out with a famous article on the nature of the corporation, highly influential. He said the responsibility, the sole responsibility of a corporation is to enrich itself, to maximize profit for shareholders. And of course, that means for management and CEOs. Anything else is wrong. This is not an economic doctrine. It's an ethical doctrine. It has nothing to do with economics. The economics are straightforward. Corporations are gifts from the public to people who incorporate. If you want to incorporate, you're given a gift by the public. First gift, limited liability, then many other gifts. Now the question is an ethical question, not an economic one. You have to do something about these gifts. Well, Milton Friedman says, no, you should just maximize shareholder value. And of course that means uh, management compensation, CEO compensation. Well, put those two together. All decisions have to be placed in the hands of the corporate sector whose sole goal is to enrich themselves. What do you think is going to happen from that? We've seen it for 40 years. In fact, there was just an estimate from the Rand Corporation, uh, which concluded that the transfer of wealth from the middle class and the uh, working class to the very rich top few percent or maybe fraction of 1% of the population, uh, that transfer is $47 trillion, okay? That's actually an underestimate. Well, that's what happened, but let's go back to the pandemic. Drug companies are ruled out by capitalist logic. Government is ruled out by neoliberal version of savage capitalism. What's left? Leaders who may or may not do something. Well, when Obama came into office, his first step was to organize a meeting of the Presidential Science Advisory Council, which had been set up by the first Bush. He asked them to prepare a pandemic preparation program. They came back with a detailed program. It was implemented. That lasted until January 2017. Donald Trump came into office. First days in office, dismantled the program. Trump's major principle is a wrecker. Anything that exists that I didn't do, destroy. You'll notice that tells you just about everything about his actions. So destroy the pandemic preparation program. There were programs of American scientists working with Chinese colleagues, difficult work, dangerous work in caves, identifying possible coronaviruses to study them. 
Trump canceled it. Uh, the Center for Disease Control in the United States is supposed to be concerned with such thing. First move, defund it. Every single year Trump has been in office, he has tried to defund the CDC. As late as the most recent one, February of this year, when he knew the Woodward revelations show, he knew that there was a serious pandemic and Americans were going to suffer from it. Budget proposal, defund the Center for Disease Control, increase funding for the military instead, defund other health-related uh, programs. Janu what happened in January, late December, uh, China was finding uh, symptoms, pneumonia-like symptoms of unknown etiology, reported it to the World Health Organization. Very quickly, they discovered what it was. By January 10th, Chinese scientists had identified the virus, coronavirus, sequenced the genome, provided the, material, the information to the World Health Organization and the world. Well, at that point, countries noticed that the United States was singularly unprepared because of Trump's malevolence. Nevertheless, it's a rich country, plenty of resources, could have reacted. It didn't. In January, country, governments that cared about their citizens did react. Many of them had the situation pretty quickly under control. Now take the borders of China. South China is where the virus was, where the epidemic was worst. Has a 1400 kilometer border with Vietnam. No cases in Vietnam. For months, there were no cases. Now there's a handful of cases, essentially nothing. They acted at once. Now the same was true in East Asia and Oceania, quite generally. South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, Thailand, Australia, New Zealand, quickly acted very much under control. Same was true elsewhere. Africa, Senegal, almost nothing. Several other countries in Africa moved at once, almost no cases. Europe waited, but finally got its act together. Most of Europe is more or less under control, not entirely. Nordic countries, pretty much under control. Germany, pretty much under control. Even Italy, which had a very severe pandemic, is now pretty much under control. Britain was the worst. Uh, the United States is off the spectrum. If you look at the cases and deaths around the world, there are three countries that are way at the top. United States first, India second, Brazil third. All three of them with, maybe this is bare coincidence, but all three of them have autocratic rulers who are trying to crush democracy. Those three, are way at the top in both respects. Fourth, well behind them, is Russia, another country not known for vibrant democracy. Uh, then you go down, you find others down the list. Well, Trump's behavior since January has been, it's almost as if it was designed to maximize the crimes. 
he's personally responsible for arguably hundreds of thousands of American deaths, certainly many tens of thousands. You can see it step by step. It never stops. There was a scientist in charge of government scientist in charge of vaccine development. He questioned some of Trump's quack medicines, fired. The uh, programs that were working with the Wuhan Institute of Virology, the main research center for coronaviruses, canceled. We have to try to blame China for Trump's malevolence, so we have to cancel programs that might help Americans. Most recent example, there's an international consortium that's working on cooperation on vaccine development, which is obviously the way to proceed. Also working in a limited way on distributional problems, trying to make sure that if there are vaccines, they won't be monopolized by the very rich, but will go to the people who need them. Uh, Trump reacted to this pulling out of the consortium just a couple of weeks ago. No, we don't want to be part of an international effort that might help Americans and everyone else. Anything that he didn't create, destroy, uniform, across the board. There's another one going on right now. There's a international UN conference on biodiversity that is critically relevant to the pandemic. Bio species are being destroyed at a crazy rate, the sixth extinction, areas of where wildlife can be sequestered, removed from human contact, are being destroyed, getting setting up all the conditions for further sp spread of pandemics. Every country is participating, except one, the United States. We will not participate in an international conference on biodiversity. Interesting, I don't think the press has even covered this. You can check. The one thing somebody found for me when I asked for somebody to check was two minutes on NPR. Maybe there's more, okay? That's what's happening before our eyes. You cannot measure the malevolence. New England Journal of Medicine is kind. They call it incompetence. It's not incompetence know exactly what's going on. The idea is maximize the prospects for my election, benefit my constituency of the rich and the corporate sector. Nothing else matters. You can continue with this. Take the deregulation. Of course, the deregulation is part of the race to destruction from environmental catastrophe which happens to be much more important than the pandemic. So deregulate to increase corporate profits, fossil fuel profits, uh, meanwhile, destroy the environment in which human life might survive, and also protect Americans. When you deregulate, uh, say, emissions, uh, and mercury going into streams, uh, chemicals that cause brain damage for children, you eliminate that, you hurt Americans. Primarily, you hurt those living near the most polluting industries. That's not me. That's not you. We can afford not to live there. But there are people who can't afford not to live there. Afro-Americans, Hispanics, 
Puerto Ricans, poor people in general, they're stuck there. That's pollution, maximizing pollution. Pollution is already a deadly killer. When you add pollution to a respiratory epidemic, it's a major killer. Okay, we'll kill more of them. Let's kill people around the world. I want to blame somebody on my malevolence. I'll blame the World Health Organization on ludicrous grounds. I'll undercut, defund the World Health Organization. What does that mean? There are countless people throughout the world, Africa, Yemen, other poor places, who depend on the services of the World Health Organization for survival. Okay, let's kill them, because then I can turn to my adoring constituency and say, I'm protecting you from the foreigners who are trying to destroy us, vote for me. Doesn't matter how many people you kill, how much you destroy, how many Americans you kill, it's me and my rich constituency. That's the world. Uh, incompetence isn't the right word for this. But and overall anyway. uh, media coverage of the pandemic, what is your assessment? The media coverage should have been along the lines of what I just described. It wasn't. Most of what I just described, you can read about only in medical journals or scientific journals. Should have been front and center, going way back to 2003 and emphasizing the fact that we're now in the same situation. Scientists are saying exactly what they said, said then. We are still in the grips of capitalist logic and savage neoliberalism. We're still in the hands of leadership of extreme malevolence. The three worst, perhaps, are those I mentioned. Trump in the lead, his clone, Bolsonaro, the other second largest country in the hemisphere, the world's largest democracy, or perhaps I should say former democracy, India, in the hands of a monster who's trying to destroy the relics of Indian democracy, meanwhile killing huge numbers of Indians, turning India into a ethnocracy, a Hindu a national religious ethnocracy, and crushing the rights of Muslims, destroying Kashmir. These are the three leaders, in, by f no one's even close in cases and deaths. Actually, I should say this is slightly misleading because I'm not counting in deaths per capita. You look at that, you get a slightly different picture, which is worth looking at. But these, these figures are very striking and the malevolence is striking. We are now in a situation where further pandemics are very likely with habitat destruction, even more likely with heating the atmosphere even more likely. They might be worse than this one, as I mentioned. We know what has to be done. We don't have a lot of time to do it. The same impediments to dealing with this one still exist. It's within our reach to overcome them. But if we don't work in a dedicated, committed way on it, 
it'll happen. This is the course we're on, unless we sharply change direction. No matter the outcome of the November 3rd election, tens of millions of Americans are going to vote for Trump. That in and of itself is very disturbing. It is. But ask yourself why they're doing it. These are Americans who have basically one source of information comes in different packages. Comes from Fox News, Rush Limbaugh, Breitbart, talk radio, bombarded all the time with essentially the same message. Pay attention to the magician behind the curtain. Our God, Trump, the chosen one, as he calls himself, the one who was sent to earth to save Israel from Iran, according to the sycophant who's his secretary of state. They can hear the same from uh, evangelical mega preachers. A result, you can see it. Almost half think that global warming isn't even taking place. Among others, uh, among the rest, small minority think it's an urgent problem. A great number think the pandemic's a liberal hoax. It was sent by China uh, to try to destroy us. Well, if that's the kind of story you have pounded into you day and night, and you don't hear anything else, and you've got this very uh, skilled con man standing up in front of you, holding up a sign saying, I love you, I defend you, while with the other hand, he stabs you in the back. If that's what you're faced with all the time, yeah, you might vote for him. Like the evangelical block, huge block, it's 25% of the population. He throws them crumbs. Supreme Court justice, pastors who can preach uh, political messages from uh, the pulpit, a pretense, of course, it's total pretense. We know that to be anti-abortion. Yeah, throw them all that. Well, that way you can keep a constituency online. Actually, I should say I have, this is all evoking childhood memories of the adoring crowds who worshiped Hitler at the Nuremberg rallies, or Mussolini at his rallies. You hear that again when you listen, when you watch a Trump rally. There is a striking difference, however. Hideous as the fascist Nazi policies were, and they were beyond description, they were at least bringing something to the people who were adoring the dear leader the economies were improving. They were. They reconstructed the economies. They were winning victories. Horrible, hideous victories, but at least victories. What's Trump doing for his constituency? He's destroying them. He's offering them nothing. They're getting smashed worse and worse by his policies. They still adore him. The manner in which I heard as a kid at Nuremberg rallies. It's a very remarkable commentary on the culture and the society. You're listening to Noam Chomsky on the president, the pandemic, and the election. This is Independent Alternative Radio. To order CDs of this program, 
as well as Chomsky books. Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Our website, alternativeradio.org. Let's turn to um, the upcoming election and all the trepidation and fear surrounding it. Of course, put on your thinking cap here and what will happen on election day and the days after? Will there be a peaceful outcome? And it's kind of amazing that we're even using this kind of terminology and vocabulary. I have to ask you, do you think there'll be a peaceful outcome? It is amazing that the question is being raised uh, with very rare exceptions. This hasn't happened in 350 years of parliamentary democracy, Britain and the United States. Uh, it's, it's astonishing that the question is raised, not by you and me, but by right at the centers of the establishment. I mean, the things that are being discussed and said are almost unimaginable. Take one striking example, uh, two highly respected senior military commanders, now retired, John Nagel, Lieutenant Colonel Yingling, recently released an open letter to the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Milley, top military officer in the country, reviewing for him his constitutional duties in case what they call a lawless president decides not to leave office after an electoral defeat and mobilizes paramilitary groups to protect him from being evicted from office. They say, in that event, you took an oath of office to defend the Constitution against foreign and domestic enemies. That's the phrase. Now you're facing a domestic enemy which is intending to overthrow the constitutional or order. It is your duty under the oath you have taken to send in military forces. They say the battalion of the 82nd Airborne to forcefully disperse Trump's, what they call Trump's army, his paramilitary forces, and to remove him from office. That's your duty on January 20th if the defeated candidate, President Trump, refuses to leave office and mobilizes forces to try to protect him. What the chances of this are happening are, I haven't the slightest idea. To me, it sounds unimaginable, but maybe my imagination isn't fertile enough. The crucial fact is that in very high places, people are talking about it seriously. Uh, I'm sure you saw Barton Gelman's long detailed article in The Atlantic, one of the top correspondents, detailed article about how not Trump, but the Republican machine is becoming organized with collections of lawyers and all sorts of others to try to find a way to finagle their candidate into office after he loses. 
discredit the election, discredit mail voting, challenge everything with all sorts of lawsuits, see if he can drag it out long enough to turn it over to the House. Constitutional does allow under certain circumstances for the issue to be to go to the House. In the House, though the Democrats are a large majority, the constitutional rules say each state has one vote. You look at the distribution of states, I think uh, 26 have Republican governors. So they could get a vote voting for the defeated candidate in the House. Then you come to January 2nd, two candidates appear and say, I'm president. One of them is surrounded by a private army of paramilitaries. What happens then? That's what the Republican Party is planning. Trump has happens to be its leader, but it's not just him. In fact, uh, this same letter refers to the Republicans in Congress as supplicants at the foot of the president. It's not an unfair description. Hard to find a shred of integrity. The rot goes much deeper than Trump. He's turned, as the New England Journal said at the beginning, turned a crisis into a catastrophe. But the crisis is there. It's a deep rot, the center of the society. And we should recognize that even apart from Trump, if this malignancy had never appeared, we'd still be facing a constitutional crisis and a very serious one. Uh, in the 18th century, the Constitution was a progressive document. Now it is so reactionary that if the United States tried to join the European Union with our constitutional system, we'd be rejected by the European Court of Justice. Uh, we're slaves to a document which was progressive in its time, but now has features that can't be accepted in any moderately democratic society. The worst case is the Senate. Remember, the Senate was established as by James Madison. Madison understood what he was doing. Madison, like the framers generally, was very frightened of democracy. He wanted to block it. The Senate was to be the major decision-making group in the uh, constitutional system. It was to be constituted of, as Madison put it, the wealth of the nation, those who are sympathetic to property owners and their rights. That's who should run the country. John Jay, first chief justice, put it, uh, those who own the country ought to govern it. That's the principle of the constitution been carried over. There's been many struggles about it. The effort to crush democracy has been overcome in many ways, but it's, much of it is still there. Just take a look at the Senate. Uh, Wyoming has about half a million people, two votes. California has 40 million people, two votes. The Republican constituency, white, Christian, happens to control, not only through control of small states, but even in the demographic 
arrangements in the major states. They happen to have predominant power to an, such an extreme that probably about 15, 20% of the population could pretty much run the government. Older, white, Christian, male, religious or super religious, traditional, gun loving, that's them, uh, evangelical. That sector is there, it's a minority, shrinking minority, becoming a small minority, but could run things. This is a constitutional order that's not going to survive, especially with the changes taking place. That's assuming that we survive at all, and that's up for grabs. It's a very dramatic fact that in these two conventions that just took place, we heard nothing about what may be the major crisis we face, the increasing threat of nuclear war, nothing about that, and very little about the other crisis, existential crisis that we face, the race towards environmental catastrophe. We've got to deal with that within the next 10 or 20 years. If that's not handled, we're finished. The changes that are taking place in the atmosphere are permanent. They're escalating. You can't do anything about them. You can fantasize about potential geoengineering magic years from now, but not anything in the foreseeable future that'll have anything to do with these catastrophes. We know how to solve them, all of them. The means are within our hands. They're feasible, but just as in the case of pandemic, not enough to know. You have to do something about it. I should point out that the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff are currently under quarantine because of COVID-19. You know, in addition to the Electoral College, another bizarre aspect of the U.S. system is the interregnum between the first Tuesday in November, the election, and the January 20th inauguration. That's almost three months. Anything could happen in that period. Paul Krugman happens to have a column in the New York Times a warning that if Trump not elected, and if, and it's a big if, if he concedes, by no means certain, he has three months to apply his wrecking ball out of spite. He might just devastate the economy. Actually, there's something we must bear in mind about President Trump, which is brought up in the Nagel-Yingling letter. He may be facing serious criminal charges if he's out of office and loses immunity. He has a personal reason to hang on. And it was revealed that he owes uh, something like uh, $400 million. And he doesn't pay taxes. Anyway, let's, let's go back again to focus on the eco-catastrophe that is now in our face, much faster than predicted. The wildfires, hurricanes, floods, droughts, Arctic and Greenland ice melting. September was the hottest month on record. Death Valley had the highest ever recorded temperature on Earth. 130 degrees Fahrenheit, that's 54 degrees uh, Celsius. So we seem to be in warp speed as we're hurtling toward climate catastrophe. 
every prediction of the IPCC, the International Scientific Consortium, every prediction has turned out to be too conservative, not alarmist enough. Leading scientists, highly respected leading scientists are warning us we should panic now. The deadliest effects of environmental catastrophe are in the distance. A huge rise in sea level, that's going to happen slowly, not tomorrow. Early signs of catastrophe are indeed around us, as you mentioned. It's going to get much worse. Uh, we don't know how much. There's a margin of error, but every serious analysis predicts extreme danger, maybe an end to the possibility of organized human life. Not tomorrow, maybe at the end of the century, maybe a couple of centuries, but we have the fate of the future in our hands. We have maybe 10 or 20 years to overcome it. The means to overcome it are available. My co-author Bob Pollan, Robert Pollan, economist at the University of Massachusetts, has done very detailed, careful studies. Uh, they're being implemented in states, some countries. Uh, very convincing evidence that within, that by maybe two to three percent of gross domestic product, uh, we could bring all of this under control. Uh, other analysts like Jeffrey Sachs at Columbia, using somewhat different models, have come up with quite similar estimates. There's a very high probability that if we use the right measures, which are available and feasible, we can put a hold on the race to disaster and, and this is crucial, create a much better world. A world with better jobs, better lives, better circumstances to live in, and better institutions. All of this is within reach, but you have to reach for it. It's like ending the pandemic. Yes, within reach, not if we don't grab the opportunity. If we're cursed with another four years of Trump, might be too late. We might be past or approaching irreversible tipping points. At the very best, the chances to deal with this crisis within the short time that we have, the chances will be severely lessened. Uh, I should say the same about the topic that is not being mentioned, the threat of nuclear war. It is extremely serious. Among the other things that Trump has aimed his wrecking ball out is the arms control regime. It's basically gone. He's eliminated it piece by piece. The parts that were initiated by Eisenhower, the parts that were uh, set up by Reagan, one after another is toppled. We have to destroy it. The last piece of it, the New START agreement, is coming up with frivolous reasons. The Trump administration has uh, re rejected Russian pleading to renew it. 
it's almost it's coming up in February, uh, maybe too late to, to save. Uh, meanwhile, at the same time, that's combined with creating new, very threatening weapons, severely endangering not only us, but the entire world with the control regime disappearing. Uh, serious people concerned with these issues, like William Perry, who's been involved with it all his life, former defense secretary, very sober conservative voice, uh, say they're simply terrified, terrified by the growing threat and by the blindness to it, the refusal even to mention it. Find a word about it outside the arms control literature. I mean, these things are coming at us like a roaring locomotive, and we're sitting on the tracks uh, playing games. It's unbelievable. I mean, people speculate as to whether there's uh, extraterrestrial intelligence. If there is, and if they're watching what's happening here, they think the species is totally insane. Totally. Well, we have a little time left to show that we're not totally insane. If not, we'll destroy ourselves. You mentioned Robert Pollan. You and he have written a new book called Climate Crisis and the Global Green New Deal. In it, yeah. you um, take the famous uh, observation from um, Antonio Gramsci about the old is dying and the new cannot be born in this interregnum a great variety of morbid symptoms appear. And then you write, but such morbid symptoms are countered by rising activism on climate change and many other fronts. The new has not yet been born, but it is emerging in many intricate ways, and it is far from clear what form it will take. In terms of that kind of activism that's required now and the urgency of activism and citizen engagement. How do we break the grip of what you call capitalist logic? You can't break the grip of it entirely, but you can modify it. Uh, we've seen, it's not a secret. What's called capitalism is actually a kind of state capitalism and no country is capitalist. It, a capitalist society would self-destruct so quickly it, couldn't exist, business wouldn't allow it. So every existing society is one or another form of state capitalism. They can be more malevolent, or they can be more benevolent. And within the existing, the relevant time span, a couple of decades, we're not going to overthrow capitalist institutions. We could seriously change them. It's perfectly possible, for example, to have a, a carbon tax, which is not of the kind that's been pr proposed, but a really serious carbon tax in which, say, 75% of the revenue would go back to working people and people who need it, redistributive carbon tax. Then you wouldn't get what you're getting in France with the yellow vests. Macron tried to institute a rise in fuel taxes, got a rebellion from people who rightly say, we're the victims of it. It's the poor and the working people who 
way out of proportion pay this. And they're the ones who need the relief, not the further burden. So not that kind of carbon tax, but the kind that is politically correct and viable because it'll redistribute the revenue to the population, cut back on the profits of those who are destroying the environment. Uh, we have to change consciousness. And take, just happen to look at this morning's New York Times. One is an article, one of a million, you see them every day, on the wondrous new developments in the Eastern Mediterranean. Chevron bought up in a smaller company which can now exploit uh, what they call Israel's, it actually should be Palestine's, huge petroleum resources and pour the poison into the world. Euphoric, look how wonderful this is. We can increase the destruction of the atmosphere. You see that daily. What does that tell people? Well, we can raise consciousness among liberal intellectuals enough so you don't see things like that. We can move forward to take over the fossil fuel industries, not nationalize them. The nationalized fossil fuel industries are like Saudi Arabia, others worse than the private ones. But socialize them, put them in the hands of the workforce and the community, have them turn to things that have to be done, ranging from capping wells that the corporations have left open because they don't give a damn, but matter for us, from that to shifting to working on uh, sustainable energy, which they know how to do. We might bear in mind that the leading force in the environmental movement 40 years ago was Tony Mazaki's Oil, Chemical, Atomic Workers Union, union the labor movement. They're the ones who are being harmed by the uh, destructive production of, uh, of uh, polluting, destroying elements. Mazaki was in the lead of this, with his union behind him. That can happen again. Can happen right in the oil industry. Cutting it back year by year, certain percentage, till you get rid of it, say by mid-century, turning to more economical, more beneficial, uh, sustainable energy. Oil, petroleum workers, there aren't very many of them, but they could be in the forefront of this. Uh, you could, there's many things we could be moving to take the automobile industry. Instead of cluttering up the highways with uh, making trap lots of traffic jams to get to work, uh, producing more pollutants because Trump is eliminating regulations. Instead of that, auto workers could be developing efficient mass transportation. Not only saves the environment, it's a better life. Sitting on convenient mass transportation to get to work for is a lot more pleasant than sitting in a traffic jam, okay, and polluting the environment while you're doing it. Uh, homes can be weatherized, insulated, uh, shifting to solar energy instead of wasting fossil fuels. It actually saves you a lot of money. 
and gives you a pleasanter life. And it also saves the environment. There's endless things that can be done across the board, individual, state, local, federal, international, ought to be an international effort. There's no borders to global warming. We should bear in mind that uh, about half the emissions, almost half the emissions in the future are gonna come from what's called the developing societies, the poorer societies. Mm -hmm. They need help. They need help in transitioning to much more efficient, cheaper, more beneficial, sustainable energy. But in the initial stages, they need help. Well, one of the parts of the Paris negotiations, which were nowhere near enough, but at least something, was to uh, offer help to developing nations to move towards improving towards sustainable energy. Uh, Trump, the Republicans generally don't want it. Trump just killed it. Absolutely not. We're not going to help anyone save ourselves in the world. Not for us. Okay. Uh, this kind of malignancy has to be overcome. This has to be dealt with on a level everywhere from an individual putting lead lights in their home to international efforts. And what the federal government does is critically important. All of that is within our hands. Doesn't require a major social revolution. The means are all there, even without substantial institutional change. My own view is, yes, we should overcome the profound flaws that are built into the capitalist system itself. That's that can, you can work. It's not an alternative to this. It's complementary to it. You do both at the same time. But the urgent problem of overcoming the existential crises, global warming, nuclear war, pandemics, they have to be done within the general framework of existing institutions. You can improve them, but you won't be able to overcome them in the relevant time frame. That's life, right? Can't get everything you want immediately. You can do the best you can. And there's a lot that we can do. Thank you very, very much. Thanks a lot. Take care now. Yep. Thank you. That was Noam Chomsky on the president, the pandemic, and the election. I talked with him on October 9th. Noam Chomsky, the legendary scholar activist, is America's leading dissident intellectual. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and in our 35th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. Since its inception, AR has made a special effort to record and archive Noam Chomsky's work. We have more than 250 recordings and a number of his books, including Requiem for the American Dream, Masters of Mankind, and Global Discontents. For CDs of today's program, Noam Chomsky on the President, the Pandemic, and the Election, and the books Requiem for the American Dream, Masters of Mankind, and Global Discontents, just call us at 1-800-444-1990.
1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Our website, alternativeradio.org. In solidarity with you, our listeners, we're offering MP3s, PDFs, and written transcripts of this program at no charge. Just call us at one 800 Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. We go out with X, performing The Call of the Wrecking Ball. Well, I woke up this morning looking for kids. Went out to the barnyard to stomp on some chicks and call me wrecking ball. Cause I'm glad it's all gone. I got bullet head one day, I got back to the cooking class. Little big old boots and old rolls, my pants are still glass. And call me wrecking ball. Cause I'm glad it's all gone. You know, I'll stomp on an egg, I'll stomp on a cub. He's up on his hands. Just go to the website, alternativeradio.org, alternativeradio.org. Uh, we, too, are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations, uh, purchase transcripts, MP3s, or CDs of our programs. So we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there. Hello, hello. What is it? CJSW. This is Crispin Glover. You are listening to CJSW 90.9 FM. Thank you. Thank you. One more. Thank you.